If you'd like to use one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find the reading on page 807. I'm going to read for us beginning in verse 13 and take us up through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, According to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah A voice was heard in Ramah Weeping in loud lamentation Rachel weeping for her children She refused to be comforted Because they are no more But when Herod died Behold an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's death are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. You say a prayer for us. Father, as we've sung, we uh, come now morning and by your uh, goodwill evening to come to delight in the words of you. We pray now that you give us eyes to see, you grant to us faith to hear that your word has come, that your word is near. We indeed, Lord, by faith are listening to your word. In Jesus' name we pray and seek these things. Amen. These verses in the back half of Matthew chapter 2 are unique in that they're one of the, the very few pictures that we have of Jesus' childhood. If you've had a child in the last decade, there is probably a folder in the cloud that has hundreds, maybe even thousands of pictures of your little one's childhood. If you're a little older or a, a lot older, you and I probably have on a shelf somewhere a, a photo book with at least a few dozen pictures of what we were like in our younger years. Uh, Beth and I lost uh, one of those sorts of photo albums a few years ago when a water tank blew And then we managed to lose a few hundred more when the phone didn't back up to the cloud And uh, the very thought of that still brings us uh, to sad remembrances Because uh, the photos are gone, the, the treasures have uh, disappeared Pictures are precious to us And while Mary, Jesus' mother, had clearly no photo album of her own The scriptures do tell us that she treasured uh, the very memories and moments that she had with Jesus, I think particularly when he was a little one. You can imagine his first step, uh, his first scraped knee, her disappointment when his first word was dad rather than mom, you know, all those sorts of things, which of course is conjecture on my part, because when it comes to the particulars of Jesus' younger years, we've really only got this snapshot here in Matthew 2 from when he was a toddler and really, only one other photo from when he, when he was 12, which is given to us over in Luke chapter 2. At that point, his parents had lost track of him at a big annual festival in Jerusalem. 
They eventually found him giving like a little symposium as a 12-year-old on biblical theology to the religious leaders who were just astounded with his grasp of such things. So, uh, granted, it's somewhat disappointing that we don't know more, that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, don't tell us more of his childhood, but it's, it's really understandable why they don't, because instead, they focus on the adult life and ministry of Jesus, which even then, uh, really only lasted about three years, uh, apexing in his, uh, in his death, his resurrection, and ascension. But even then, what we know of Jesus' life is limited and selective, one of those gospel writers, John, he, he writes toward the end of his book, you know, essentially like, well, I've come to the end of my scroll, so I've run out of space, but there's so much more I could say. In fact, a, a whole library of books uh, could fill up all that Jesus did while he was among us and all that we saw with our very eyes. I say that just simply to help us understand that the limits of what we know of Jesus's life as a whole, and especially when he was younger, are, are quite few. Which means that this little bit that we have here in Matthew chapter 2 is, is important. Last Sunday, uh, we dropped into the storyline a, a, a few weeks, maybe a few months, after Jesus had been born when he was visited by the Magi. He, he was no longer, you know, that cute little infant. He was a, he was a little bit bigger. And now we're entering to, into the years of his life as a, as a toddler, when he was uh, scooped up into the arms of his father Joseph. When they fled to Egypt as immigrants seeking safety in another country. Which is to say that this snapshot from Jesus' uh, childhood, it really isn't one of happy circumstances. It's stressful, it's, it's uh, distressing. It's the little toddler Jesus, the, the king of the Jews, is being hunted by another king, a, a monstrous man called Herod. And if you think about it in that way, then what we're actually glimpsing in Matthew chapter 2 is a story about how uh, God the Father protects God the Son by hiding him and his earthly parents away in, Jesus, in Egypt and then calling them back from Egypt when Herod is dead. So I think you can picture the royal family with their bags packed, uh, but they're not smiling. This isn't an adventurous road trip. There's a, a furrowed brow. There's concern. There's uh, stress as they flee to protect their little one's life. And you'll have noticed in verse 13 that it's right after the Magi head back to their homeland that they, they then depart themselves. There's an angel that uh, appears to Joseph in some sort of dream or vision who says your son's life is in danger and you need to get to Egypt. Which, if you find it helpful to take notes, which is why I jotted down for myself, at least, that verses 13 through 15 are really all about Joseph's dream. Joseph's dream. This isn't the, the first time in the Bible that an angel has appeared to him with particular instructions for him. It happened earlier on in chapter 1 when he was consider, considering divorcing Mary, having found out that she was pregnant with a child that didn't belong to him. But he stopped short in that decision when a divine messenger of God showed up and explained to him how he and this little one were going to be part of God's rescue mission for humanity. Well, once again, another angel uh, shows up for Joseph, but this time with instructions to pack the family's belongings and make haste for Egypt, which had a, a border crossing about 90 miles south of Jerusalem. At this time period in history, Egypt had, had long been a refuge, uh, a place of refuge for Jews. 
In the city of Alexandria, it's estimated that there were perhaps as many as a million Jews uh, living there at this time. So, Egypt, a natural place to go to be safe because it's outside of the the reach of of murderous Herod, but it's also a place where where you'll be able to go and find your people, other, other refugees who have sought safety. Not only was Egypt significant for that reason, but Egypt uh, is also a place that's just uh, loaded with biblical history. It's the place where uh, Joseph landed in and prospered after he had been sold into slavery by his brothers. It's the country where God's people were enslaved for 400 years. It's the place where Moses led God's people out of and into the promised land. And while it's historically so that uh, Jesus' family escaped to Egypt, our narrator also intends the attentive Bible reader to recognize the symbolism of something bigger that's taking place. That's what that little quotation in verse 15 is, is pointing us toward. Quote, out of Egypt I called my son. That's a line from the Old Testament book of Hosea in which the prophet was originally talking about God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. What's happening now in Matthew chapter 2 is that there is another Moses type, an even greater Moses, who is about to bring about an even greater deliverance. And thus, Matthew is symbolically framing Jesus' life in relation to Moses. As there are some similarities between the two of them Just think of the way that Moses was hidden away as a baby In that little raft and set upon the Nile River Because the Pharaoh, the king of the land Was intent on killing all of the babies of the Hebrews Just like King Herod is intent on doing in Bethlehem Divine providence kept Moses safe in Egypt When he was a little child Just like it's keeping Jesus safe in Egypt In the tender years of his youth Fast forward, Moses of old Brought God's people out of the land of bondage and death And Jesus, this Moses-like figure Is going to bring people out of a worse bondage And a worse sort of death, the death of sin So what we need to do when we read our Bibles Is not only read the passage before it But like read it in view across the pages of Scripture And if we'll do that, what we'll see that is in some Jesus is being cast as the successor to Moses To come and save his people from their sins So God brought deliverance in the Old Testament through Moses But now there's a a greater deliverer A greater deliverance for his people in the new Through Jesus There's another type of uh, topology or uh, biblical symbolism That's tucked into these events that I want to help us to see too which has to do with the way that Jesus is also being cast as the the faithful Israelite son in contrast to the often unfaithful Israelite nation. So uh, just as Israel was God's son brought out of Egypt, so now Jesus as God's son is brought out of Egypt. That the promises of old made to God's people are They're they're being filled up and filled to the brim in him He is going to be the faithful son called out of egypt who accomplishes and, and achieves what was lacking in the first faithless son israel Not only that 
But Matthew 2 also has symbolic elements in it about the legitimate king of Israel. Is it Jesus or is it Herod? So we've got Herod, who is actually an illegitimate king of God's people because he's not of the lineage of David. He's of the lineage of Esau. And he's doing everything in his power to stop the little king-to-be. And so another little glimpse of what we're seeing in Matthew chapter 2 is, is that his kingdom, Herod's kingdom, is colliding and clashing with another king's kingdom. And in this way, Matthew 2 is also about the, the kingdom of heaven invading earth. This is the, the reign of God versus the rule of rebellious humanity. So on one level, this is about a boy born to Jewish parents, the son of David who would excite the messianic hopes of his people. It is that, but it's also more than that. This is about the coming of God's reign. This is about who runs the show on earth, who has the power to make it happen, and who is going to win in the end. In the telling of the story in, in this way, our narrator is showing us that there's even a, a much bigger macro level to the storyline of Scripture that we're getting a glimpse of here. In fact, at its very core, Matthew 2 is part of the age-long conflict between the seed of the woman Eve and the seed of the serpent Satan. When a word of promise was made in Genesis 3 that one day the evil one's head would be crushed by the woman's descendant. And in this way, King Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Because what we have in the person and work of Jesus is the coming of God's reign, the defeat of Satan's kingdom, as is represented by Herod in this particular day. Kingdoms colliding. That's why the angel appears to Joseph, telling him and his family that they need to live in Egypt until the death of Herod in 4 BC. He's going to be hidden away, kept safe there. And then the king of the Jews will be uh, brought up out of Egypt to deliver his people from the bondage of sin and, then, and to usher in his kingdom. But until that day comes, we've got Joseph, this remarkably righteous man, this man legitimately related to King David, the adoptive father of the Lord Jesus, doing everything he can to protect the true king of Israel. This uh, section of Matthew's gospel is just loaded with images and themes that find fulfillment and fullness in the work of the Lord Jesus. And in many ways, this is just uh, the beginning of it. Well, that's Joseph's uh, dream. Which now brings us to verses 16 through 18 and uh, the awfulness of what happened when Jesus's family was living in Egypt. This middle paragraph here is really all about Herod's fury. Herod's fury. Earlier on in the chapter, uh, we were told that Herod was troubled when he had heard from the wise men who'd come to town in search of a, of a king of the Jews. So that he was troubled, he was disturbed. Uh, threatened by the announcement of one who would supposedly uh, usurp his reign. And you'll recall from our previous study uh, that Herod, like, tried to make a deal with the Magi. He said, listen, you go find him. When you find him, send word back to me, and then I'll go pay homage to him. No, I will go and, and get rid of him. That was the intent all along. But the deal with these fellas uh, fell apart for Herod. They roll out of town, 
conveniently forgetting to check back in with him. That's where things pick up in verse 16, because he discovers that he's been duped by the Magi. And he reacts to this by cruelly having the boys in Bethlehem killed who were two years old or younger, which historians reckon to be uh, about 20 children, 20 families, their lives forever scarred by a jealous monster of a man. The death of one baby, whether uh, in the yet to be born and still in the womb, or under the age of two, is the death of one too many babies. And so there's a, there's a real sorrow that we feel as we read of the murder of these little ones. And this sorrow is what this second Old Testament quotation is picking up on in verse 18. Because in the awfulness of Herod's actions, Matthew points us to the words of Jeremiah as a place of relatability. Because uh, the prophet is talking about the time when the people of God were taken into exile, the day that the Babylonians came and attacked Jerusalem. They razed people's homes. They destroyed the entire city. And then they took the people to Ramah, a place north of Jerusalem. And at Ramah, the people were put into caravans, and then they were scattered, families separated from one another, and positioned all over the Babylonian kingdom. It was just a place of unimaginable anguish. Something like the unimaginable anguish that moms and dads felt in Matthew's day as they wept over their children who'd been murdered in Bethlehem. They wept like Rachel once did, who was known among the rabbis as the, the mother of Israel for all time because her death in childbirth set her apart as the symbolic, sorrowful mother of her people. And yet, her death in childbirth was the gateway to life for Benjamin, and he, the, the child of her pain, was an ancestor to the Messiah, Jesus. And in that way, we see a way in which even bereavement became the pathway to blessing, which I know is something that some of you two have come to discover. You miss your loved one uh, every day. You'd much prefer to have him or, here or her with you. But in their absence, you, you've seen little ways in which bereavement has become the pathway of blessing to you because you've come to experience the nearness of God and the brokenness and the sadness of your life. As Christian people, blessing can come through sorrow because even in the, in the dreadful events of life, the mistakes that we make, the foolish things that we do, the awful things that are done against us, even in, the, even in those things, there are seeds of God's ultimate purposes for good that grow, plans that can't be thwarted, plans that can't even be thwarted by a brutal king like Herod, whose hands are guilty and stained by having these little ones murdered. He was called Herod the great, but the moniker of being great had to do with the great big buildings that he uh, oversaw, some of remarkably so, which still stand to, the day, to this day. He himself was not a person of great character. He was, he was a complex man. He was a very brutal person. Kenneth Bailey gives just a, a slick little bio of him in, in noting that, really, that uh, racially, Herod was an Arab, 
Religiously, he was Jewish, and politically, he was Roman in all of his allegiances. In the early years of his life, he was described as, as being good-looking and powerfully built. He, he bravely led his troops into, uh, uh, four, into 10 different sorts of battles. But in the latter years of his life, things just began to disintegrate for him. He became paranoid and vindictive. For example, his sons were often seen as potential political rivals, and, and two of them were strangled to death upon his order. He became suspicious of one of his ten wives, Marianne, questioning her political loyalty, and so he had her killed, after which he would then wander around the palace calling for her name. And when he couldn't find her, he would send the servants to find her, and of course, when they couldn't find her, he would then have them beaten. Fast forward to the end of his life. At this point, he's ill with a number of uh, painful diseases, and so uh, he tries to take his own life, but is thwarted from doing so by one of the palace guards. So he survives this suicide attempt, and then he pronounces this final commandment to his troops, which was that they were to go and arrest thousands of notable people in the area and then sequester them in, in Jericho, so that upon his death, the notables would be executed, so that there would be mourning in the land when the king died. To which Bailey succinctly says that the reason he did this was because, quote, Herod knew only too well that no one would weep for him. Fortunately, his final order was never carried through. But with all of that as track record of brutality in his life, it really is understandable that an old man would have ordered the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem. It's just in keeping with his awful, vindictive, and paranoid intents. So you read that and you go, okay, well, how in the world are we supposed to make sense of those things? Well, to lean on Bailey again, he says that what we're reading about here is actually the, the depth of evil that Jesus came to redeem. So there's a mindless, bloody atrocity that took place in relation to the birth of Jesus. There's the bloody execution at Calvary as he, the innocent, dies in the place of the guilty. Which is to say that here in Matthew chapter 2, we, we have the, the testimony of the willingness on the part of God to expose himself to total vulnerability, which is at the very heart of the Incarnation. This is how much a, a God would love us, that he would come to us in this way. And in these things, we also find a surprising bit of encouragement because we know how the story goes from here. Herod eventually toppled down, and the church was established, and it, was flir and it flourished. Which, says Bailey, if the gospel can flourish in a world that produces the slaughter of the innocents and the cross, the gospel can flourish anywhere. From this awareness, the readers of the gospel in any age can take heart. We can take heart. You see, friends, the, the, the kingdom of God may be subject to enmity. The, the church of Christ may be subject to persecution. Yes, this may be, and it is so, but God's love will protect and redeem. In spite of the opposition of the evil one and any sort of Herod stand-in, which results in scorn and persecution for God's people, God's kingdom will come. The offspring of Eve, the Son of God, the true King, 
the serpent crusher will soon fully and finally defeat the evil one and his kingdom will be established. And because that's so, we mustn't fear. We mustn't despair. We mustn't get lost in the gloom of doom scrolling. Instead, we must live by faith. We must be confident and encouraged and hopeful. If the gospel can flourish in a world that produces the slaughter of the innocents and the cross, the gospel can flourish anywhere. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom will come. Well, as mentioned, Herod's kingdom, at least for him, came to an end in 4 B.C., upon which one of his sons, Archelaus, took over, who, like his father, was a cruel fella. Eventually, he got kicked out of his role by Caesar Augustus. And it's upon the news of at least his dad's death that Joseph and Mary were told pack up their belongings and they head back to their homeland, but not to Bethlehem, instead to a place called uh, Nazareth. Which brings us now to verses 19 through 23 in Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity in particular in relation to the city uh, called Nazareth. Nazareth wasn't a very well-respected place. It was at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, and everybody uh, looked down upon the place. Perhaps you'll know that a little excerpt in John's Gospel where a fellow called Nat Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from there, and he asks that rhetorical question, can, can anything good come from Nazareth? It was a place that was derided and despised. Well, uh, that's from where Jesus hailed. It's where his dad had a carpenter shop and presumably didn't make a lot of money. And Jesus growing up there, notes Matthew in verse 23, is another way in which what was spoken by the prophets of old found its fulfillment in him. But here's the tricky part about uh, this little bit of fulfillment. Try as you might, you won't find an Old Testament passage that clearly lays out what Matthew is alluding to, which leads most to think that he's referring to a general theme in the Old Testament prophets, that the, that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. Uh, like in Isaiah 53, quote, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Got another little bit of that in Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm, which speaks of him being uh, despised and separated from. Of course, there's that little line that there was nothing attractive about him that would draw people uh, toward him. The, the point being that when God comes to us, he, he's born in a humble village, and then he grows up in a despised city, a place of no significance. Which is remarkable the more and more that you think about it That God didn't come to us by strolling down a red carpet But by living on the wrong side of the tracks As Isaiah put it, he was despised and rejected by men Him being despised started with Herod And it ended with a criminal on an adjacent cross Mocking him for his perceived failure Derided, rejected Isaiah also uh, puts it that he was a, a man of sorrows, uh, acquainted with grief. I just thought about that this week. I said, well, he, he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, because he knows what it's like as a kid to have to move around to a few places, to be part of a family that has to be on the run because you're looking for safety and security in another place. Jesus presumably knew the grief of having your dad die before you were 30. 
He lived with the burden of needing to make sure that his mom would be looked after because she was going to outlive him. Jesus knew what it was like to not be uh, really totally understood by his half-brothers and, si and sisters. They, they, they didn't get him. He knew what it was like to have friends hurt you and fail you and not show up when you needed them the most. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And thinking about this, I, I found myself thinking about a, a song that I learned as a kid in church because it has this line in it. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and clean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. He took my sin upon him. What sin? My rebellion against him. My despising of him. He took the sin of his rejectors and mockers as if they were his very own, reconciling the very ones who nailed him to the tree. Do you remember what the Roman soldier says to him at the very end of things? He says, that guy's got to be the king of the Jews, which is the very thing which is foreshadowed for him here in Matthew chapter 2. He's providing a way even for his executioners, his enemies, to become his friends. He also, he took our sorrows upon him because he came Really, friends, to end our, mor our mournful exile. It began representatively when we were exiled in Egypt. We were exiled before that from, e from uh, Eden. And he came to bring us out of the exile and ultimately to, to bring us home. And in the middle of that, to give us hope in our herd and in the disappointments of life. Don't you love that line? He, he took our misery and suffering upon him himself. He, he, he knows us. He's, he's touched with our sorrows. He's touched by our sorrows. He can sympathize with us. We can cry out to him with our disappointments and frustrations and mistakes and sadnesses. We can uh, pour our heart out for it to him because he knows about affliction and suffering and sorrow. He's, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He came to end our mournful exile bringing hope in the midst of hurt and life, which is this surprising and wonderful little reminder to us that hope can show up in the most unexpected of places. After all, hope took the form of a man who spent 25 years of his life in a place that was nobody's vacation destination. Hope can show up in the most unexpected sorts of places, even in the face of disappointments and death. Because even in the, the dreadful events of life, there are seeds of God's ultimate purposes for good that can't be thwarted. God's kingdom will come. God's kingdom is coming. God's kingdom has come. And ultimately so, when it comes in full, it's going to overcome all opposition, and it's going to turn our despair into hope. And one day... It'll manifest itself in glory when the victorious Jesus comes again.